0: You're responsible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whatever I say is your fault. Oh, no. Strange Ride is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit StrangerideShow.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the weird on the digital airwaves. I was standing in a nearby Wawa. That is to say a chain of convenience stores and gas stations that taught the Northeast and mid-Atlantic region of the U.S. For those of you who don't happen to have ever had the pleasure of being inside a Wawa. Anyway, I was in the Wawa trying to make sense of their touchscreen breakfast sandwiches for my sister and brother-in-law. I myself would never order a sandwich from anything you can get through a touch screen. When I heard the familiar strain of voices in harmony, isolated from any instruments, singing a now ubiquitous line of 80s pop rock. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. In 2011, Rolling Stone called this the worst song of the 1980s. Blender and GQ labeled it the worst song of all time. And yet, Nearly 40 years after that song had been recorded, here I was, listening to the bright, strangely naive ascending progression of synthesized notes answering Gray Slick and Mickey Thomas over the intercom of a regional chain on their corporate radio station. A lot of pop music finds its way onto corporate radio. Even rock music. A careful selection of Cure songs, for example, was in regular rotation at the Coldstone I managed after college, nestled among the brighter and bouncier offerings of the mid-80s. Being on a corporate radio mix doesn't mean anything in particular, but it lends a kind of layered irony, or, or maybe schadenfreude, to Starship's We Built This City. Someone always playing corporation games. Who cares? They're always changing corporation names. We Built This City is a song that was self-consciously recorded to garner the highest possible revenue for the band, and also the record company, who created it. And it succeeded in spades. But weirdly, or perhaps strategically, City is also a song that spends most of its lyrics ranting against corporate culture. What I'm trying to say is, the highly commercial chart-topping hit for a group with its roots in late 1960s counterculture may be the most complex and bizarre pop song of the 80s, if not the history of all pop music. Starship, or rather the band it grew out of, did in many ways build this city on rock and roll, but most of the people responsible for the building of said city had left or been kicked out of the band by the time they made that claim. In fact, It may be that the very removal of those artists actually allowed Starship to chart their first number one single since the core of the band was formed in 1965. Today, we're going to take a journey, a strange ride, into the dark, twisting, and haunted history of a song we now hear almost exclusively at the Wawa, unless we have the good sense to put it in our regular rotation in our 80s music queue, or the bad sense to program easy-listening adult contemporary office rock into our car stereo. Today, we're going to find out exactly how and why Starship built this city. Yes, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, generally your co-host and not your host, uh, but I have taken over yet another episode of Strange Ride. Uh, in fact, this is probably going to be two episodes uh, for a topic about which I am deeply passionate. And to monitor me and, and make sure I don't foam at the mouth, we have, of course, your, your usual host, Savannah Varet.
1: This is weird to be on the other side because normally I'm the only one like foaming at the mouth excited about something So <laughs> this is nice, but when Rob made this I thought that meant that he was now an expert of like all things music So I asked him today. What does you can call me owl by Paul Simon mean and he told me. I don't know.
0: I think it's meaningless Do you know what you, you, you can call me at, What is it if you, you be can, my
2: bodyguard?
1: <laughs> I can be your long-lost pal What
2: does that mean? Uh, I can bullshit something if you give me like 30 minutes. But why can you call me Betty? And why can I call you Al?
1: So, if if anyone can tell me the meaning behind the song, I will be your long-lost pal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you can, I'll call you Betty, and you can call me Al.
2: See, Savannah's already got us thinking about the wrong tune. Mims, <laughs> get us back on track. I built my entire personality on rock and roll. I don't <laughs> see how somebody could not build, try to build a city on it. This is Andrew Mims, of course, our uh, music uh,
0: expert, I suppose. Savannah, is that fair?
1: Yeah. Our uh, rock expert. Certainly knows yeah. more than I do. So. Yes. Okay.
0: The I only play one of the guitar adequately, recorders. so... Yes. I,
2: we have kind guitar players,
0: but you may be the only, uh, only alchemical actor to have actually been in a band.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. So we got some experts on stage. Well, here. no, Luke. Luke's played in a band. Oh, has he really? Yeah, he was. Uh, he was in uh, a thrash metal band back in high school.
1: Oh my God! We need to have him talk about that.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry uh, if Discord's Luke, if you're listening, and I like and I like outed you. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I remember Relic. And you remember Relic. I remember Relic. Let's pledge it out. Uh, I I solemnly commit commit myself to to keep keep my my hands, arms,
0: feet, and legs inside inside the vehicle vehicle at at all all times while on this this strange ride. (sighs) Starship is the grandchild of Acid Rock Luminaries' Jefferson Airplane via Jefferson Starship, who dropped the Jefferson in the 1980s and any connection to their original name. While musicians often leave bands to start other bands or pursue other projects, it's unusual in the history of rock to have such a clear lineage between three separate but directly connected musical groups. Every single member of Jefferson Airplane would be fired by the band or quit at least once over the next 20 years. And as members left, the group would change names and styles, first to the soulful, arena-rocking Jefferson Starship, I think I can go out on a limb and say one of, if not my absolute favorite band of that era. And uh, after that, they would become the bubblegum popping, fully synthesized Starship, not to be confused with Jefferson Starship. So, nineteen sixties Jefferson Airplane, nineteen seventies Jefferson Starship, nineteen eighties Starship, nineteen sixty um, yeah, you got. It. And then
1: after that. They That's just it. died? They
0: ceased to be after 1989,
1: yeah. <laughs> they made that song, and everyone was like, get away. Well,
2: there's some... Uh, we'll get there, So because okay. Jefferson Airplane comes back, but... Yeah, I was about to say, like, I, when I was like looking through, I saw that there was like a, not necessarily new albums, but like, new releases and stuff. There was one new Jefferson
0: Airplane album in the 80s, yeah, after Grace Slick quit Starship, which left Starship with nobody who had been in the original band at that Weird. point. Well, Slick was never in the original band, but anyway, she was. She was in Jefferson Airplane, but not at... Well, let me tell you the story. Lake <laughs> <laughs> is also, I think, my absolute favorite rocker of all time. So this, I'm fanning, going to fanboy out the wazoo today. Uh, the way the band's uh, three names morph into each other suggests a core identity that reveals the truth of Starship by way of the airplane. So just one more time so we got a real clear sense of this. Jefferson Airplane, 60s, acid rock, psychedelic rock. Seventies it's like soul arena rock kind of they're not journey exactly in fact i I'm gonna argue they're on the further edge of weird than journey um, yeah for sure, yeah, especially if you listen to some of their like b- side tracks and then eighties they are just pure
2: pop. so it's it's so you say that the, the
1: planes connect them.
2: The, the names. Yes. So it's the Jefferson that connects the first that's two what and the Starship was not, that but connects I was the second say, two. I thought yes. you were
1: saying that their identity is based off of like flying things, but I was like, well, <laughs> what if it's based off of the Jeffersons?
0: <laughs> Except that Jefferson drops by the time he yeah, get to the last iteration. Yeah, because all the iteration. original
1: band members were gone. Yes, that's true. Jeff left.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the provocateur and rock genius Grace Slick was the only person to perform in all three iterations of the band, but as I just said, she was not there at the beginning. Let me tell you a story. (laughs) Jefferson Airplane was founded by Martin Buchwald, also known as Marty Balin, and Paul Kantner. Marty, the son of a white Jewish father and white Episcopalian mother, was raised in a predominantly black neighborhood outside of San Francisco, where he developed a passion for gospel music. This is very common in early rockers. Elvis, for example, was heavily inspired by uh, black musicians. And gospel music in particular. He admired uh, black rockers, including Little Richard and Ray Charles, uh, but he knew he couldn't make music like those artists. He said, I am not black. Therefore, unlike Elvis, he said, I'm not going to try to make that kind of music. Um, he didn't have the same cultural background. He said, I have to create a different sound. I want to rock, but I can't create their sound. I have to create my own.
1: Nice.
0: Yeah, that's that's makes sense. Yeah. But- that sound took its inspiration from the folk scene that dominated san francisco and the broader broader pop scene in the mid-60s typified by of course bobby dylan and the raiders no just bob dylan
1: oh i was about to say that name sounds vaguely
0: familiar (laughs) no no. doesn't he he's it's Paul like, Revere and the Raiders who are not Bob Dylan
1: he weirdly like speak talks doesn't he I mean not sing Di- talks
0: Bob Dylan is w- w- known for having a terrible singing voice yes. he's, yeah he's an awful singer <laughs> but an amazing songwriter oh okay yeah. because
1: my stepdad I remember when I was a kid he would play Bob Dylan in the car and I would get very upset because I was like this song sucks <laughs> turn it off and then he would play it to annoy me <laughs>
0: My so my brother in law on my wife's side of things, my wife's sister's husband, it gets very mad about Bob Dylan because he can't sing. He's like, <laughs> well then why do we listen to him? Maybe the same like, thing
2: you were doing in the car. <laughs> like probably. Covers of Bob Dylan are amazing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah they really like are. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix's cover of All Along the Watchtower is mm. one of the greatest recordings of all time.
1: Oh. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that.
2: I mean, it, who you would you like to have? Maybe but you just probably don't recognize I it. I should
1: say that like I do listen to a lot of music, but it's a lot of Broadway musical soundtracks.
2: <laughs> have you watched the movie Watchmen?
1: No. Surprisingly, yeah. I have not watched Watchmen.
2: They use a lot of, like, Bob Dylan covers in that, and a lot of Bob Dylan in that.
0: Also, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Pete Seeger, and the Weavers, all of these were the folk scene who inspired marty Balin, and really psychedelic rock generally his partner in music paul kantner lost his mother cora to polio when he was only eight years old and he was shipped off to military school odd beginning for a rock musician in san <laughs> I francisco don't know.
1: i feel like the military makes you either like super strict or like super punk
0: it breaks you yes yeah, yeah well yeah. exactly yeah, it breaks I mean, you in ruins your entire it life you but break yeah. the military inside of you <sighs> As a young man, he
3: quit a job at a cannery to focus on playing music. Music is not something I was driven to do. I, I didn't want to become a quote-unquote musician. I wanted to participate in the culture. This was a nice vehicle that was both fun and it was educational, good feeling. It just gave me something intangible that was worth having and being involved with. So it wasn't a driving force. I'm not a driven musician who must practice 12 hours a day. I'm a songwriter who uses a guitar for colors and atmospheres and languages and rhythms.
0: Marty Balin met Paul Kentner at a club Balin played often called the Drinking Gourd.
1: <laughs> the, like a pumpkin drinking?
0: Yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, it's like, you can drink out of a gourd if you oh, hollow it out. And... That
1: makes a little bit more sense. I feel like that would be kind of fun.
0: Yeah. It's a good name that for It would be a club.
1: really big drink.
0: Oh, it would be fun to drink from a gourd. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. He
0: yeah. completely forgot that it's a rock club. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but that's what it's referred to. Okay. Anyhow. Cantor had been playing music for a couple of years at the Folklore Center, uh, also coffee houses with people like Sherry Snow and David Crosby, when he got up on stage to play the Drinking Gourd solo. So yes, Cantner and David Crosby, and so Savannah knows nothing about rock music, but Mims does, so I'll look at Mims. Cantner and Crosby <laughs> knew each other before they both ended up in bands that became yeah. famous yeah they were friends before that it's wow. really cool yeah Crosby Stills Nash and Young you've heard of those guys right
1: could you repeat the name I'm sorry
0: <laughs> Crosby Stills Nash and Young sometimes Rogers- without Young CSN CSNY no. <laughs> all right no. fine Woodstock Sweet I was Judy, listening to
1: Hadestown earlier today so- okay. yeah no. <laughs> That's
0: separate Thing. Um, <laughs> the, this is like this is like my five nights at freddy's episode really, you have no I idea like, what i'm I talking have nothing about to
1: contribute to this conversation.
0: <laughs> so uh the story goes Cantner got up uh, to play the drinking gourd by himself none of his friends were there the club didn't have a spot for him to play in so balen gave up his spot because he saw Cantner come in He was like this you know tall skinny goofy looking guy with, with glasses and he was like i want to see what this guy's gonna do He was a weird looking guy, said Balin. He started to play and then just stopped. He said, I can't do this. And he, and he walked off stage. What? <laughs> that's what Paul Kantner did the first time Marty Balin saw him play.
1: That's amazing. But also, like that <laughs> yes, dude gave that's... up his spot for him, and he, <laughs> he just was like, walked away. He was like
0: screw it. I can't like, do yeah,
1: this. Nah. <laughs> I don't feel this.
0: <laughs> but now, see, the, the, the original time I read that story, it didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. But then, from Kantner's perspective, he said that the crowd was noisy and wasn't paying any attention to him. Oh. So he See, said, I screw was this. gonna
1: say he's like, "There's no one drinking out of pumpkins here." So I'm leaving. (laughs) What the fucking But now there were too many people drinking out of (laughs) pumpkin. Too many pumpkin
0: drinks. This needed to be resolved. So, Balin and Cantor uh, decided to create their own club, The Matrix, to perform in. Because again, Balin saw this, watched this guy walk off stage, and said, (laughs) "I need to be in a band
2: with that man." (laughs)
1: That's, that's how
2: you choose bandmates you just find weirdos <laughs> and like i want to be friends with that person basi- i want to spend time in a van with that motherfucker yeah <laughs> that's you that's have to yeah what
1: we've done here well, yeah. yeah
2: yeah it's true no like the the, the, the whole alchemical actors thing what kind of drew me to it is it's punk rock as fuck oh <laughs> yeah i think that's we're true punk
1: rock we're pretty punk. I'm rock. probably not you should well, see
2: our reviews <laughs> like the whole do-it-yourself attitude to it oh, it's, yeah that's it's, true <laughs>
0: Balin and Kantner, as I said, created their own club called The Matrix to perform in, before that had anything to do with Keanu Reeves. Um, they recruited bass player Bob Harvey and drummer Jerry Pelliquin and vocalist Signe Antoli, uh, none of whom would stay past the band's first album. They also brought in Giorma Kaukonen, a lead guitarist who had grown up in Washington, D.C., but also toured the world because of his father's job working for American Intelligence. In mid-1965, he was on his way to the Soviet Union with his parents after graduating from college, when he met the 20-year-old Swede, Margareta Lena Pedersen, who moved out to live with him in California and married him shortly afterward. and first met Kantner when they were both attending Santa Clara University. Kantner, by the way, dropped out, of course, before finishing, because, you know, military school and all. Oh. <laughs> Broke him for the for uh, oh, like establishment, anything, right? It's not gonna not going to sit well with Kantner. That's fair.
1: Well, there's too many people drinking gourds
0: here. There's too many drinking gourds at this college. <laughs> You people need to get settle down and listen to me play uh and he uh he auditioned for the band after he'd been confined to san francisco kalkanen that is by the justice system so let me tell you this story so you're oh? confined to
1: san francisco yes is that...
0: yes you can be confined to a city that hmm by the law
1: because <laughs> i know like there's house arrest and then there's jail but then they're like you have full reign of the city, but you can't pass this <laughs> it's,
0: part? It's, it's more like you're not allowed to leave because your wife is let me tell you the story uh, Kalkanen uh, was teaching guitar and thinking about hitting the road when a police officer mistook his wife Margareta for a prostitute and started to handcuff her but, <gasps> what yes she, but his wife Margareta w- was pretty tough she was unwilling to be handcuffed so she started wailing on the policeman
1: fuck yeah let's go hell yeah <laughs> and that's punk as shit right that is punk rock
0: fuck <laughs> she, she eventually had to be hauled off to jail by seven police officers
1: oh my god I I'm in love with this woman. I mean, she's amazing.
0: Is, she is Swedish. Um, <laughs> so Kalkanen's father used his connections to get them out of trouble, but they had to stay in San Francisco to, because of the legal proceedings. Because and so, she had
1: to beat up more cops. <laughs> yes,
0: because she needed to keep the police in line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: so Kalkanen auditioned for Cantor and Balin's new band. Sort of like a bit of kismet because he goes on to be like the major guitarist associated with the band.
1: Wait. So the reason he can't leave is because like he needs to be around when he gets like called to court and stuff.
2: Yeah, basically. Oh, okay. That makes more. That makes sense. That
1: makes way more sense than you being a a criminal, but being like, oh, but the city's okay. You just can't go (laughs) outside of it. Just fucking escape from New
2: York.
0: (laughs) I think more to do with his wife and all her legal... Anyway. Yeah, I got you. The lineup wasn't complete, however, because we're still missing our bass player. Uh, Harvey, the original bass player, turned out to be the wrong fit. He was a bluegrass player, and Balin and Cantor wanted to take the band away from folk and more toward a rock sound, so you can't do the bluegrass thing.
2: The th- when I think of a bluegrass bassist, I think of like an upright bassist. Just doom, 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 doom.
0: Yeah, it's not exactly George Harrison, is yeah. it? Um, so... Kalkadin called up an old friend from D.C. named Jack Cassidy. Cassidy had been hospitalized for rheumatic fever as a child and survived and dove into living life on his own terms. He started playing clubs at the age of 15, and at 18, he had 40 students he was teaching guitar to in Bethesda, Maryland. Oh, hey. Yeah, he's one of ours. And he began attending Montgomery Community College. He's another one one of ours in many ways. Yeah. Cassidy had a big handlebar mustache and when he flew out to audition for Jefferson Airplane, Cantner told him he hated the mustache and had to shave it off. A coward. I love Paul Cantner. He's such a... Pain in the ass. Um, also, Kantner wasn't happy with Pelican's. Uh, oh, uh, let me f- finish that story. So, Cassidy cut half of it off <laughs> and did a whole set that way. I night. love it that. Wonderful.
1: Every single one of these people are so weird. And then he just
0: shaved the other half off. But Aww. for one night, he did perform with half of a mustache. I love that.
1: <laughs> which I love that. An intensely
0: 60s these thing to do. These people are my heroes. They really are. See, <laughs> see, you can see why I love them so much. Um, also he was so Cantner also wasn't happy with Peliquin's drumming sorry when Peliquin, a part time optometrist went out to help Cantner fix his glasses <laughs> one afternoon he returned to find Paul Cantner whose glasses he was out fixing interviewing other drummers
3: <gasps> oh, <laughs> oh my god so shitty
0: Paul Cantner I do love him I love his music I think he was a genius but yeah he is he's
1: he's, <laughs> he's a dick
0: he's Just, a bit of a dick hey thanks for my glasses Get the fuck out <laughs> yes <laughs> Cantner um so but then so so the optometrist comes back, Peliquin, and immediately begins wailing on Cantner because Cantner's <gasps> audition. Oh drummer. my
1: god They <laughs> so, gotta get the guy's wife it's out.
0: Margarita. There. Yeah, we gotta call Margareta. <laughs> so Balin uh then cut Peliquin from the band for wailing on his partner. <laughs> And he was replaced by Skip Spence, uh, a guitar player who Balin co opted into drumming for the airplane. So Skip was actually originally a guitar player. But as as Mims knows, sometimes we double up. You can't I, there's find a lot drummers. more
1: wailing on each other in this story oh, there than will I would.
2: Be. We've only just begun <laughs> oh. the wailing.
0: There will be much more wailing. Um, The airplane started at The Matrix, the club that Balin and Cantner put together, and then began playing clubs around the city. They received rave reviews from the local music critics, most notably the jazz critic Ralph Gleason uh, and John Wasserman, who were largely responsible for, like creating their national reputation they were signed by rca that same year and released their first single it's no secret in february 1966 having replaced their drummer yet again this time with spencer dryden a nephew of charlie chaplin's oh Ooh, huh. yeah how about that uh, like paul kantner had gone to military school as well spencer dryden
1: interesting
0: yeah So uh, I I just want to say that one more time. Like, I think it's important to realize how people get famous. The airplane largely owe it to Ralph Gleason, this one jazz critic who only generally wrote about jazz and rock music was still fairly new, especially in San Francisco. But he took the time to go to their show, watched them on stage and said the music they're creating is good and important and you people should listen wow and this is why RCA ultimately I think picked them yeah, up that's,
2: that's really cool like, yeah. I, I didn't know they were found by a jazz guy
0: yeah. yeah yeah well you sort of had to be because rock was so new they weren't really yeah. rock critics so mm. the jazz guys had to be willing to try something new So in part, it was Gleason's openness to the new music. It's really a lesson to all of us, Mm -hmm. because here we are talking about Ralph Gleason, right? His claim to fame at this moment for us is that he was willing to open his mind to the airplane.
1: Yeah. I will say that, like, I don't only listen to the Broadway music.
0: (laughs) Now Savannah's feeling self-conscious. But
1: but seriously, I listen to music on YouTube, not on Spotify. And YouTube will suggest me new songs all the time. And in my YouTube rap, <laughs> it told me my most listened to thing was independent music.
0: See, now Spotify is not gonna recommend this episode to anyone.
1: Oh, man. Take oh, yeah, it back. I use
0: Apple
2: Music, so. <laughs> oh, we're no.
0: I love you, Spotify. I love you, you Swedish app. You. You're you just like Margareta. Although the whole band, exp- I'm in love with you. Although the whole band experimented with LSD, please be good to me. Although the whole
1: band experimented,
0: I need you, Swedish daddy. Oh my God, stop! <laughs> <laughs> Although the whole band experimented with LSD. Let's talk about Skip Spence a little bit. He developed an addiction to LSD, mm. which is, I don't think,
2: very common. No. That, uh, you don't hear about it very often. And like, I don't, I don't fuck with any of that. No, it's like, intense. I feel, I feel like-, like that's, not great to develop an addiction to. No. no, and I
1: also feel like don't they say that that's like the kind of drug that you can't get an addiction to or whatever?
0: Uh, the hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. I think that's a claim, but I, I I've seen evidence that mushrooms and all the microdosing can. Oh, can so yeah. Get addicted to anything? Yeah. No, that, like, I mean, yeah,
1: that's what I was thinking too. Well, I'm addicted to boulderskate.
0: Same. So. <laughs> same. I have an unhealthy relationship with podcasting. Um, <laughs> so Spence developed um, this addiction, and he was taken to bouts of paranoia. So let me tell you a couple of stories about how Skip Spence doesn't stay with the band. Driving with Kantner one night, he demanded to be let out of the ca- let out of the car, just on the side of the road. And hours later, Kantner was driving back from the, wherever he was, and he found him in the exact same location where what? he had left him. He just spent hours sitting on the side of the road in that same spot, or doing whatever he was doing. Um, Did they pick
2: him back up? Yeah, just, he, oh, he, just,
0: well, he just, yeah, that's yeah. good. Um, he wasn't like, oh, weird. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be a cantor thing to do, I guess.
1: Um, <laughs> after, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Cameron. laughs>
0: so after he ran off to Mexico, Spence, that is, and didn't return for months, uh, he just disappeared Whoa. to Mexico. <laughs> the, the, like, it would be like if Savannah just went away and I got to figure out how to do strange ride <laughs> <identical laughs> yeah. confessions um and the many 60s. other things
2: what else are you gonna do yeah
0: he must be in mexico but of course the band determined that he was not committed enough to their work <laughs> uh, and that's how they ended up replacing spence with uh dryden not to be confused with skip spence spencer dryden
2: their names are kind of familiar but uh, similar i too have fired somebody for for Running away to Mexico. Really? No. No, I wish. (laughs) It seemed possible. Could you imagine? Um, What were we talking about?
0: Cantner, for his part, Cantner did not believe that drugs played a major role in what the airplane were doing, despite their prevalence in
3: psychedelic rock. I think marijuana, being the Catholic boy that it was, gave me a sort of outlaw badge, given the prescribed prescriptions that had been put against it throughout the 50s. Drugs were not... And this may seem a little bit silly to say or to listen to, but in the 60s, drugs were not a huge part of what was going on. Drugs were just like a dessert at a good meal.
0: So he's saying, I guess, the culture, the scene, that was the main thing. He's not even really necessarily saying the music was the main thing. He's saying the scene was the main thing, and the drugs were just, like, on top of it.
1: Okay.
2: It's the 60s. It's the 60s. Everybody's on drugs. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Their first album, uh, The Airplane, was released in August and sold roughly 20,000 copies in California where the band was known. The rest of the country really didn't know who they were. And it's almost hard for us to imagine this now, but this used to be... This is true still, but for the most part, I think local acts tend to stay more local.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but like with with the internet and less focus on like regional radio airplay, it's... It's, I, yeah,
0: I listen to TMD out of Baltimore, so I like am familiar with Baltimore artists and like Eastern Shore yeah. artists even mm-hmm. more because of that. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, Mims, the internet tends to be where.
1: Honestly, the fact that anybody became like worldwide famous back then is insane to me because it's like the, I don't yeah, know. If, how the, could they do? Yeah, it?
0: how did yeah. they spread the information The like record that. company. It
2: was the record companies yeah. and their their
0: resources that yeah, allowed
2: that to happen. Spending like shit tons of money to bring certain people to certain places
0: so changes in staff weren't
2: quite over Signy Tolly, now Signy
0: Tolly Anderson had just had her first child Lilith good choice of name <laughs> Signy and decided that she couldn't be a mother and a singer in a rock and roll band Lilith by the way is also an excellent song out of Cantner's uh, solo career he did a song called Lilith which I think may or may not have been a tribute to Signy Tolly Anderson's child I'm not sure but Aww. I think it definitely is a reference to the the mythological Lilith Anyhow,
1: which we made a whole episode about on the yeah, other podcast podcast <laughs> uh, called Confessions. Uh, oh, the pressures topical. I was also on that one, that was fun to talk about. Yeah,
0: Lilith was a good story. So, Sydney Tolly Anderson uh, has a baby, and believe it or not, the pressures of touring with a baby were starting to wear on her. Um, it was the 60s and people did you know attempt these things, but the band persuaded her to stay on long enough to sing at the Monterey Jazz Festival, but eventually. Anderson said, That's it. I'm going to go be a oh, mom. Yeah. I don't blame her. I don't want to do this anymore.
1: I mean, it's so stressful to put on shows at all that I couldn't imagine having a baby on top of that. Like, oh my God.
0: So, I mean, it, I mean but it's, it's weird to think of. It's like, you know, that fifth Beatle, right? Um, best Paul Bett was best. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like, what is it like to be that guy? Signe Tolley Anderson is. I think that guy of Jefferson Airplane yes there were a lot of people who left but Anderson was the one who could have stayed on in theory but Anderson said she never regretted her decision she never thought twice about it she was fine like they they became world famous but she could have cared less
2: I mean she she had like writing credits on that first album after they blew up that album sold like hotcakes. She made
0: some money. Yeah. yeah, she for the rest of her life. Yeah, she made royalties. I mean, on honestly, that.
1: that's all you need. I'd yeah. probably I'd rather have the money than being compl- than being famous like that.
0: And it's I mean, I guess arguably maybe they could not have become world famous without Grace Slick, because Grace Slick writes their original hits. Oh. Um, so she was replaced by Grace Slick, who the band had shared a bill with when she was performing with her husband and brother-in-law in a group called The Great Society, which was a sarcastic reference to Lyndon Johnson's domestic policy agenda intended to distribute aid to the needy. Frank Zappa also makes fun of The Great Society. A lot of the hippies had like issues with The Great Society. They didn't feel like it was really adequately serving mm. people in need. So Slick being sarcastic, <laughs> the band is... Is named after this policy <laughs> that the hippies think is ridiculous she was born grace wing in, in a classic white anglo-saxon protestant home and called her life an exercise in counter she spent her childhood acting out like everything <laughs> what she means by that is everything she did as an adult was a way to counter-program her childhood
1: oh, okay yeah i understand it's a bit
0: like kantner in a way okay Um, She was an only child until her brother Chris was born when she was nine. Uh, And she spent most of her childhood acting out skits and pretending that she lived in the 18th century.
1: Whoa. (laughs) That's a little weird.
0: (laughs) She's pretty intense. She enjoyed going out to five-star restaurants with her parents, who were quite wealthy, uh, and aspired to be one of the popular girls, but was thrown out of her friend group for being too sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she, she. I think you're going to like her, Savannah. I, I love her so much. She attended Finch College, a finishing school in New York, mostly because she wanted to hang out in New York. Uh, Fair enough. There, respectable. She, yeah, that's a good reason. She had no desire to attend a finishing school, but... That's what her parents would let her do, like, in New York.
1: I mean, if you're a wealthy person, isn't that what is, like, the thing? Is, like, the wealthy kids go there to yeah. just party anyway? To college, I mean? so yeah. she wanted to <laughs> like... hang out
0: in the city, and she sought out Odetta in Greenwich Village uh, after she snuck back behind the Folk Legends dressing room, and she played guitar for her after her show. So Slick was also, like, imagine, you know, this, this folk idol, and you not only sneak into her dressing room, but you insist on playing music oh, for Oh,
1: my God. Yeah,
0: she was bold. She I, is I, bold. That's this is a bold I don't even a
1: bold woman. Know. <laughs> More than bold, whatever. Yeah, it is. like
0: I want to shake her hand. <laughs> oh wait, you just wait. She's gonna upset you and delight you throughout this episode. I mean, that one upsets.
1: That one upsets me. I would. I hate it when people play guitar at me. So
0: it's like. <laughs> well, Odetta does that for a living, so it's sort of like a professional. <laughs> okay, like you know, g- give me your opinion. But it'd be
1: like if someone came in here and was like, "Savannah, let me monologue for you." Yeah, <laughs> kind of like, like that. No, please.
0: you would be a little bit flattered, a little bit annoyed. <laughs> After she left Finch, she went to the University of Miami, but she wasn't there. Very very long her friend Darlene Ermakoff wrote to her about the burgeoning hippie scene in San Francisco and Grace Wing came home to live with her parents and find out what fun there was to be had in the nascent counterculture so her friend's like what are you doing in Miami it's super badass in San Francisco now everyone's high and naked and Grace is like okay here I come
1: (laughs) Tell me less. <laughs>
0: you, had you had me on that <laughs> You had me at naked. Um, she, I don't. She wasn't really like that. But she married Jerry Slick, an old family friend who had been in her sixth grade class, and she modeled dresses for the I magnon Couture Department Store uh, while Jerry went to film school the first music she wrote was for one of Jerry's movies for which he won first prize at the Ann Arbor Film Festival and she took road trips with her husband and her friend Darlene and Darlene's husband who by the way was a former 40's quiz show contestant uh, his name was Ira Lee and they all went together down to Mexico to experiment with drugs and the hippie culture south of the border. Oh
1: did they run into Pelican? <laughs> Spence, <Yeah>. Spence. <laughs> Down there? Was it the Pelican? No, bell- no 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 Pelican was the, was the optometrist yeah. yes. Spence Sorry. was
0: the one that the, all the drums. You're you're keeping track of the drummers, though. Ah. You were right that it was drummers. (laughs) Slick said that she and her husband made up their minds to form a rock band after a night watching and listening to Jefferson Airplane uh, at the Matrix.
2: That's really cool.
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? The airplane was making more money on folk rock than Slick was making on showroom modeling, so it made good financial sense (laughs) to her to just be a rock star.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) Jerry. I wish that was financially viable.
0: <laughs> Jerry's brother, Darby, already knew how to play guitar, and they brought on a male singer named David Minor and a saxophonist and a bass player for a recording contract. There is, you can listen, there's one Great Society album you can still listen to, um, but the, broke, the Great Society broke up after only one year. Darby Slick and the saxophonist Peter Van Gelder had decided to go to India to study the sitar, and so they just <laughs> left the 60s
1: that is so that interesting
0: it sucks that we weren't all just born in the 60s or they didn't just keep going so that we could all yeah, decide like, to go play the sitar in india and just leave Yeah. like i wish i had that kind of freedom right it was 1966 and signie tolly anderson had just quit the airplane when my boys went off to india jack cassidy approached slick uh Approached Slick at the Avalon Ballroom, and she quickly accepted his offer to sing for the airplane. Slick said, This was an initiation, an invitation to hold what I'd always thought was a lofty position reserved only for supermodels, movie stars, and great physical beauties ad nauseum. It felt like the flat chested, kinky brown haired, sarcastic bitch was breaking down another barrier in Barbie land. This Hell is, is Slick's, Slick's quote. attitude. Yeah, this is Slick's attitude which again I, I did lo- she
1: say that yes like oh, said okay. that about herself I like, yeah
0: she talks about herself in a very self-deprecating fashion uh-huh. which again endears me to her so much but she also has this she really doesn't have a chip on her shoulder but she has this hang up about not being the popular girl like going back to when she yeah. was 12 she's always obsessed with the fact that she's not the popular girl so I'm I need to take that quote and now qualify it with a bunch of stuff okay Although self-deprecating to a fault, Slick would become one of the great sex symbols of the hippie era, despite herself. Hmm. She's a beautiful woman. And not all rock stars, even in the 60s, fit conventional white blonde Barbie standards. So her concept that all the rock stars were white is Cass Elliot, for example, better known as Mama Cass was famous for her weight which was actually the subject of her music no one's getting fat except mama cass uh and john janice joplin was sexy for her attitude and her voice but not really her looks and janice and grace were friends um then there were the black women, <laughs> breaking the color barrier. So again, mm. not all white Barbies. Mm-hmm. Uh, with music that crossed over, appealing to white and black audiences, this list is long just to name a few. We have Diana Ross and the Supremes, the Ronettes, Mary Wells, Tammy Terrell, who sang with Marvin Gaye, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, Tina Turner, Dionne Warwick, and Aretha Franklin. All very attractive women. All not white Barbies. <laughs> you gotcha. See? Um, so that was Slick's perspective is all I'm trying to say gotcha. on this accomplishment. Mm-hmm. It's also the case that Slick was not exactly ascending to stardom when she was drafted by the airplane. Uh, while the Great Society was only ever an opening act for the airplane, so she was like moving up a tier, their fame was more or less limited to California. The airplane was n- still not nationally known.
1: It's a big state. It's, yeah,
0: I mean, yeah. Re-
2: relatively. Electoral college-wise, yes. It's better to be big in California than to be small nowhere i
1: was about to say like in rhode island yeah (laughs) Yeah, i was about to say like you could fit 50 marylands in California, right so it's like that's a big state
0: we're more densely populated but yes there are many more people in california yeah yeah uh and it's also really northern california if i'm being honest not so much la more like the san francisco area oh So they had yet to break through into the national and international rock market. And it would be Slick, as I mentioned earlier, who helped them actually achieve that transition. When she joined the airplane, Slick brought with her two songs that would become the most popular songs on their iconic second album, Surrealistic Pillow. An album that I owned as a CD originally when you were in Columbia CD Club and they would send you one in the mail. Everything about that doesn't exist anymore. CDs, the mail. I remember hearing... About the Columbia record, Columbia, Club.
2: yes, <laughs> through a Weird Al song.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was very much a member, so I—that uh, was the first Jefferson Airplane album that I owned in CD form. Um, so the songs that Slick wrote were Somebody to Love, uh, which was actually, she didn't write that. That was written by her bu- brother-in-law, Darby Slick, who was gone now in India. So <laughs> she got to, to bring the song with her. And then her own song, White Rabbit, uh, which was a take on Lewis Carroll's Alice stories.
2: Mm-hmm. You, you guys have now. I, you've, you've, more, you, you knew those I'm songs already. I'm more familiar out, with the Alice in Wonderland story from that song that I am the Disney movie. <laughs> although Slick plays with the
0: details yeah. of the plot yes um, so uh, with a Spanish bolero beat and uh, that feels a bit like a military march Slick tells her listeners in White Rabbit that one pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small and the ones that mother gives you don't do anything at all in part said slick, the lyrics allude to the hypocrisy of the older generation swilling one of the hardest drugs, namely alcohol, uh, known to man, not telling us and telling the kids not to use psychedelics. so mom and dad are getting drunk and saying you can't smoke pot and uh, drop LSD." okay. So many children's stories, she says, also contain drug references. Peter Pan sprinkles fairy dust on the darling children to get them to fly. And Dorothy sees the Emerald City after falling asleep in a puppy field. Mm. Uh, uh, Then there's Alice chomping on mushrooms and her hashish-smoking caterpillar friend. So Grace Slick is just picking up on all these things and saying, Look, kids, drugs. (laughs) Jefferson Airplane wanted to create a revolution in and through culture, specifically music, that the whole world would join. This created a tension in their work. They were subversive, but they also sold subversion through a record label to the youth of the Western world. This tension is very important to my story today and is evident in both the Great Society songs that Jefferson Airplane recorded, their highest charting hits. Both of these songs. So let's look at them. Somebody to Love, which Slick describes, don't you want somebody to love? Do you know the song?
1: I listened to that yeah, one. I He go. sent us a playlist, and I, I did, did listen to all of them. But I think that it didn't. They didn't sit with me, <laughs> like only in the sense that I think I was really tired, and so. And
0: nobody was a puppet in any of them. I'm kidding. The, huh? mus- the musicals.
1: <laughs> okay, but like, what are you talking about? Avenue Q
0: or Rocky Little Shop of ours or yeah. Oh. You know. Anyhow, you could add a puppet. You can always add a puppet they didn't add a puppet
1: it would be easier for me to watch it probably i mean but i wasn't watching it i was listening to it which is also another problem for me i feel like i need something visually to help me
0: youtube so let's go back to somebody to love this
1: bitch <laughs>
0: <laughs> slick describes the song as an inversion of a traditional love song with the singer looking to give love rather than celebrating or mourning how he or she receives love
1: i liked the song
0: bits subversive i verse thought it was cool
1: That peaked at number
0: five in June of 1967 and remained on the Billboard's charts for 15 weeks. The song's lyrics were actually ever so slightly too sexual for the record label. The listening public heard, Yours, I say, your eyes may look like his, but in your head, I'm afraid you don't know where it is. The original lyrics, which you can hear on some of their live albums, were,
2: In bed, I'm afraid you don't know where it is.
1: Oh. Yeah.
2: It's amazing how, like... The acceptability of things that we would consider...
1: Tame. Silly.
2: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah we hear v- explicit references to sex
0: now in perfectly normal radio play songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was a different time. Just, airplane really broke down some of these boundaries, and I'll tell you how, but... Um, White Rabbit, with its countercultural drug message, peaked at number eight the next month and stayed on the charts for ten weeks. So, were the airplanes subversive, or were they commercial? Slick tells a story about a performance in the Midwest for an audience of teenagers dressed in formal wear who sat politely and listened to them play. (laughs) (laughs) When the band came back next year, though, she said, everyone in the audience had grown out their hair and were covering themselves in body paint and dancing naked in the aisles. Okay. So there was this huge cultural change within a year of them touring to, the, to this Midwestern town. They, She's not saying that the airplane did that. Yeah. But she's saying that they were a kind of cultural export from San Francisco that was slowly moving through the country. Mm. So they brought a bit of that scene. Uh, they, but weren't they weren't the, the only reason, but
2: they, they helped
0: spread. They were part of that tapestry of... Mm-hmm. Counterculture that was working its way through the country. In New Orleans, the entire band was arrested, except for Slick, who was in the shower getting ready to go out with the boys after the show. Otherwise, she would have been arrested. What
1: did they get arrested
0: for? Well, they stuffed towels under the door, uh, but the security guards smelled marijuana <laughs> oh. coming from their room, and everyone in the room was hauled downtown by the police. So the band is getting into trouble. They are breaking the law. Is what I'm trying to say. The late 60s were not a period of free love and turning on and dropping out for everybody. I think that's also like, it does their music. And we just assume everybody's a hippie, but that's not true. The hippies are rebelling against mm. a standard, you know, 1950s culture that hasn't gone away. The parents... All these people are still arresting them. A lot of America and the world were still as square as we are today. Mm. In my opinion, we've gone much squarer than we were in the 60s, even though we have more sex in our lyrics. We also have less sex with each other today than we used to. Yeah, it's a
1: really interesting, I don't know, it's ships passing in the night, right past each other.
0: The airplane tossed doses of acid into their crowds. They got people riled up. They tried to win converts to the age of Aquarius. Paul Kantner criticized the police for cutting out the lights to observe a town curfew at a performance, and he was thrown in jail for inciting
2: a riot. (laughs) For a second, I thought you meant the band, the police, and not Sting. the Well, <laughs> stings, sting's still a decade ahead of us. Earlier in Bakersfield,
0: California, kantner encouraged the audience of 5,000 to dance despite a city ordi- ordinance against people under 16 dancing. Think about the world the we're in. Fuck? This is California. What kind of footloose that, ass yeah, I was about to
1: say, That's the
0: plot of Footloose, isn't it? Is it? The plot of footloose. Um, some of, some of those 16-year-olds might be... So the crowd was not all under 16, but they could have been there. So under that premise, they, they were not allowed to dance. And so the police had to come to enforce the rule. So it wasn't just like one of those rules, like you're not allowed to have a llama in a bathtub. This was...
1: Like an actually enforced yes, rule. Yes,
0: Bakersfield used this to keep people from dancing at concerts. So Kantner... In this the hell? is what Paul Kantner did, and we're going to love him again for being the man that he is, (laughs) or that he was. He pointed out to the crowd how few police officers there (gasps) were and how many audience members there were. Oh, my God. And said, go ahead, get up and dance. What are they going to (laughs) do?
1: That's amazing. fuck
0: yes. Speaking of fuck, Slick was nearly busted in Dallas, Texas for saying fuck on stage, which the police recorded... This apparently violated a local ordinance against apparently saying fuck on stage. She was
1: set up. (laughs) Slick. This
0: is Grace Slick now. Oh, she she was set up. up. Sorry, I'm... Uh, She was. They brought it for that... They were waiting for somebody to say something. And Grace Slick is nothing if not unapologetic about what she says on stage. Um, She talked herself out of the arrest, though, because she is a good talker. Nice. And in Ohio, the police formed a barrier between the stage and the audience. So all of this... I mean, this is the scene these guys are performing in. Slick's quote...
4: All along the front of the stage stood a row of 25 officers, arms linked in riot style, creating a barrier. Their heads covered with bulletproof visors, their hips loaded with clubs and guns. They formed a line between the audience and us like a bizarre group of armored, hairy chorus girls. <laughs> <laughs> that's insane.
2: Yeah, like that's, They're at a
1: concert.
2: Yes. That's the type of shit that like... Like it makes me. I don't know if any of y'all have seen uh, the Straight Outta Compton movie, Mm -mm. but it makes me think of the the scene where the cops are just like, "You're not allowed to play fuck the police," Mm -hmm. and so they played fuck the police. Yeah, right.
1: Absolutely. This is
2: music. I mean, it's this is what music can do. It's (sighs) what music is for, if you ask me.
1: That is so. I can't imagine that. So they were there to like prevent people from dancing.
0: The cops were. The cops were always there. In one way or another, not, not that line of cops, that okay. line of I mean, the view is the state views or whatever. I mean, I'm saying the state, but I'm whatever government group views the band itself as subversive and potentially dangerous to society, which is why the cops are always present.
1: Wow, that's so crazy. Yeah, I couldn't imagine it's
0: not happening at a Taylor Swift concert. I'll tell you that.
1: But they have to wheel her out in trash cans, though, so that. Have you not know, heard? I heard this oh, the other good day. Oh, lord! Where, like, because the fans are so crazy and they can't, like, know where she's going or whatever, she like gets into like a trash can or something, and they wheel her out.
2: That's kind of hilarious. <laughs> Get <laughs> it and, together, like, ladies. I kind of want to like <sighs> just check trash cans uh, outside me. of like. <laughs> I have something to toss <laughs> out here. Outside of like the M&T Bank Stadium, next time she's in Baltimore or, check or something, them. I want
0: to wait outside with some old Chinese food. <laughs> Jack Cassidy's brother, Chick, objected to police manhandling an audience member, so they maced him. The police.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Slick and Cantner objected to Chick getting maced, so they maced them, too, <laughs> and took all three of them to jail.
1: For, oh, my God, show. Like
0: I mean, this is, I think, after the show, but yeah. This is infuriating. Well, because the, the police had manhandled an audience member during their performance. So Jack, uh, so Cassidy's brother Chick was up, hey, was like, hey, man, what are you doing? How come you were messing with these guys? And so they maced him, and then they maced Grace Slick. That and is they
1: insane. Maced Paul
0: Cantner. Because uh, the two of them, Grace Slick and Paul Cantner, are constantly <laughs> speaking their minds.
1: <laughs> Good for them.
0: Yeah. It just yeah. sucks
1: to get maced. It sucks to <laughs> I get can't maced. Imagine. Yeah.
0: Slick's act on stage was a revolution onto itself. Let me talk specifically about what, what it... Oh. Grace Slick quit performing. Basically, she gave maybe two or three performances in, like after Starship, so it's not possible. It, it hasn't been possible to see Grace Slick perform for decades. Um, oh. But had we been alive, or had we been born earlier, it would have been s- yeah, a like- sight to see Grace Slick on stage. Let me tell you why. (laughs) She had a kind of Dadaist aesthetic that shocked and offended, but without taking on any easily identifiable targets or meanings. You can actually see some of her stuff because she appeared on a lot of late night shows with the airplane. When an audience member asked if she wore a chastity belt, she lifted up her skirt to show him that she didn't even wear underwear.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. That is technically a crime.
2: Yes. do you think she cares
1: no absolutely not she does not
0: (laughs) on an episode of the Smothers Brothers comedy hour she smeared dark makeup over her face and concluded the group's song with a black power salute nice it's still not but the blackface is not so nice oh i'm
1: sorry i did did that did not register to me
0: but you see that like it's confusing like what is she saying slick was clear that she wasn't making a statement about blackface but it wasn't exactly apparent what statement she was making i'm going to quote her
4: black that's the right color for singing white rabbit i thought i wasn't interested in some funny al jolson look though i wanted to get in it as real as possible The trouble was that my features were angular and not right for the part. So apparently none of the viewers even noticed that was in this special makeup. Maybe it was just getting harder to shock the couch potatoes.
0: So she was trying to offend people intentionally and also voice solidarity with black people. Very strange, right? Yeah, that
1: is really weird. She's confused,
0: but she's got the spirit. She just wants to, yeah, like jam her finger in somebody's eye. Slick was a hardcore liberal, and and so I want to be clear that she had no intention of punching down with her performance whatever we want to read uh, into it. The choice was avant-garde, meant to offend, but not to offend anyone in particular. I want to mention the Wooster Group in the 1980s, 90s, made a similar choice in their production of The Emperor Jones. Um, At another performance, Slick wore a Hitler mustache and a Nazi jacket and goose-stepped around the stage.
1: Oh, okay. Remember,
0: she's way into satire, Mm -hmm. so she's also satirizing... The culture that she's a member of, mm-hmm. as a, a rich white person, the actor Rip Torn joined her, dressed as Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Rip Torn, if you watched uh, the Gary Larry Sanders show on HBO, Rip Torn is uh, his producer on that show. Hmm. Anyhow, um, and Cantor and Slick actually contemplated building a musical version of Richard the Third, featuring the airplane and Rip Torn as Richard the Third as Richard Nixon. But it never came to be.
1: Sounds pretty complicated. I kind of want
0: to <laughs> see it. Yes, yes. So it was ultimately going to be a critique of the Nixon administration somehow using Richard the Third and Psychedelic Rock. Then you
1: get into writing musicals and the whole thing. Yeah,
0: it's a lot of work. You <laughs> got to get puppets involved.
1: Uh, <laughs> Slick,
0: Slick was actually invited to a tea party at the White House by Richard Nixon's daughter, Trisha.
1: Oh, oh my God.
0: Let me tell you this story. Oh, this my is, God. This is one of Slick's best stories. Trisha had attended Finch ten years after Slick, so what Trisha did was she wanted to get all the Finch girls together, and Gray Slick <gasps> happened to have been oh. a Finch girl. <laughs> you got me. Oh, and Trisha oh. put Slick on the guest list. When members of the uh, social committee objected, one of Slick's sweetmates spoke up for her, and the invitation stood. So this is, I think, the misconception. Trisha Nixon did put together this list of uh, ladies like uh, uh, from Finch, Finch girls. Mm -hmm. And so Slick was a Finch girl. So it feels like it was oops, like Trisha made a mistake. But people pointed out to her, um, Grace here, Grace Wing, she's actually this wildly subversive, vagina-showing rocker. And Trisha was like, no, it's cool. I want to meet her. Trisha Nixon did want to meet Grace Slick. okay that's what I think that's misunderstood about this story it takes some of the comedy away from the story but it is true that Trisha Nixon was interested in interacting with Grace Slick um, so when Grace Slick showed up at the party she brought the political agitator Abby Hoffman uh, who if you don't know anything about Abby Hoffman look up look up Abby Hoffman on YouTube you'll enjoy yourself. <laughs> Uh, Abby Hoffman was at her side as her bodyguard. Abby Hoffman was part of, like, an exorcism of the Pentagon. Like, Abby Hoffman did all kinds of bizarre stuff. Um, and she was turned away as a security risk for having brought Abby Hoffman. Oh! Yeah.
1: Oh, so she didn't get to go in? It
0: was a good thing for Nixon because she had brought LSD with her and was planning <gasps> to slip it into his tea <gasps> in the hope that his acid trip would somehow prompt him to end the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam.
1: Well, that's a leap. That would have changed the course of history! She,
0: she very nearly ended our involvement in Vietnam with one drop of acid
1: also probably would have landed herself in jail for a very long time after the Secret Service asked her
0: to leave Trisha Nixon and her mother sent for security to find her because they wanted to meet her but Slick and Hoffman had already gone so the meeting never happened damn so there's a bit of grace slick for you but there will be much more um, <laughs> then there was the airplane's relationship with their record company rca gave them fairly free hand to make music since the record executives didn't entirely understand the new san francisco sound the sound which was so they like knew people liked it mm-hmm. but they didn't know why or what was good about it they were just like yeah, do your thing
1: isn't that the thing with most executives though we don't know what's going on
0: yeah more <laughs> artistic yeah. executives. except at spotify the sound
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: i'm gonna let you say that rob <laughs> where we we look forward to being heavily featured in your Im- getting many impressions for this episode mm. uh, the sound, the San Francisco sound, which was also being developed by bands like the Grateful Dead and Big Brother and the Holding Company who would ultimately play with Janis Joplin was something new in and of itself rock music in the hands of these musicians was moving away from the twee ballads of young love and loss into something new, That's mostly what you hear in the 60s is a lot of these love songs but what Starship and well not Starship, sorry, what Airplane is up to and the Grateful Dead Oof, the subjects are all over the place. Okay. There were new infusions of Eastern musical styles, the influence of mind-altering substances, which, uh, which, which lent a surrealistic flavor to the lyrics and the sound and the artful blend of folk music with rock, incorporating a sociopolitical edge uh, in artists like Dylan and Seeger. Also, of course, the airplane, et cetera, et cetera. The airplane didn't align themselves with a particular political flat platform, but many of their songs, like White Rabbit and Plastic Fantastic Lover, were deeply critical of the society around them. Plastic Fantastic Lover, this, the title actually refers to TV and a culture obsessed with TV. The Plastic Fantastic Lover is the TV. Hmm. The lyrics were regularly censored through their 1969 Volunteers album. That was the first album that wasn't censored. Potential allusions to drug use were routinely excised, even if they had nothing at all to do with drug use. The record company would just guess, this feels like it could be about drugs. (laughs) We're taking that out.
2: God, that is so shit.
0: Sex also had its limits in the way the band wrote about it. With Volunteers, their 1969 album, they pressed RCA to let them leave the line, tear down the walls, motherfucker, in their song, We Can Be Together, successfully arguing that RCA had released the cast recording of hair, musicals, (laughs) that contained language that was similar, if not worse. But because it was a Broadway musical, RCA didn't think twice, because it had already received a lot of play in front of middle-brow audiences
1: nice airplane
0: looked at that and said well how come we can't say motherfucker but the cast of hair can
1: see me talking this about broadway came into to it, it is that it like works? one of the
2: first big f-bombs in music In like popular yes. music in
0: rock music i think that may be the first motherfucker perhaps that i mean the beatles weren't saying motherfucker yeah. <laughs> the rolling stones weren't saying motherfucker and the rolling stones were supposed to be like badasses yeah. right they were edgy, experimental Beatles and Rolling Stones, um, but neither was as experimental as the Airplane. I want to say this, and I believe this. My dad is a was a Beatles guy, loved the Beatles, and I know the Beatles inside and out. And I sing the Beatles to my children, and I, I do also enjoy the Beatles, but they are not as experimental as the Airplane or no. Grateful Dead
2: or no. you know these the the San Francisco sound. Was on the edge. The weirdest thing from the Beatles is like Maxwell's Silver Hammer or The White Album's Garden. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) which I was listening to the other day because it was stuck in my head. Wouldn't (laughs) leave. Um,
0: Yeah yeah all that white album and anyway the beatles like the beach boys got famous with boy girl love songs and then worked their way into the harder stranger more challenging music as their careers progressed sergeant peppers was many albums in right they had long since established themselves they were this in sync style phenomenon and then they did this other thing which linked them up with this whole new rock scene the Airplane never had a pop phase.
3: <laughs> oh. and
0: so that's also true that they never had a number one song, unlike the Beatles, who had dozens and dozens of them. White Rabbit and Somebody to Love were their only top ten songs, and they were on their second album. Volunteers, perhaps their next, next most rock recognizable track, were the Volunteers of America only rose to number 65 it was featured in the far scump soundtrack so i think more people do recognize volunteers so number 65 that's all it got to the airplane were a commercial enterprise that sold records and concert tickets and all the members got rich on their talent and success but their music remained difficult for the most mainstream listeners let me give you an example after Bathing at Baxter's, which is the name of their third studio release, remains mind-altering to listen to with lyrics and music that require attention and focus, and are truly rewarding to hear, even today. It opens with Kantner's The Ballad of You, Me, and Puneel, which itself opens up with Kaukonen's guitar, Wailing Feedback. The Beatles also did a bit of that kantner says halfway down the stair is a stair where i sit and think about you and me but i wonder will the sun sun still see all the people going will the moon still hang in the sky when i die when i die when i'm high when i die slick contributed her song rejoice inspired by james joyce's ulysses <laughs> very literate person uh, Grace Slick, very literate rocker. She also feature, uh, contributed a song called Two Heads, featured a, featuring a Middle Eastern-style guitar rift in which she asks, No one will know you've gutted your mind, but what will you do with your bloody hands? Your lions are fighting with chairs. Your arms are incredibly fat. Your women are dying alive. If you've had any women at that. I mean, y'all need to take time, right? Yes. This is heavy stuff. Uh (laughs) Your women are dying alive if you've had any women at that. Cantner
3: says. The heart of it was very experimental and very life enhancing, life supporting and life aggrandizing and celebrating. So that came through. It was probably one of our worst-selling albums, but it was the place where we took the largest steps forward in learning how to deal with the studio.
0: Slick's vocals echo around Balin's, and Balin's echo around Slick. So Airplane has two lead vocalists, female and male. It's not unique to them, but Mm -hmm. it is fairly unique to their sound. They often didn't rehearse or perfect that interplay. They did it in the studio. Uh... They did a lot of improvising. Harmonies weren't carefully constructed, unlike the Beach Boys or the Beatles. Uh, but the album came together over the course of six months from trial and error. Six months that's, they were going to the studio. Yeah,
2: that's.
1: Is that a long time? Yeah. yeah especially oh.
2: for the 60s. You uh, would go in could, for a couple weeks. Uh, oh. Black Sabbath recorded their first album in two days. Yeah.
0: Because well, you're supposed to be on the road perfecting the music and oh. you come to the studio and you lay it down yeah. and that's I it. I understand. Even Fleetwood Mac, like in the 70s, were recording in a week or two. They I would get, got you. Yeah, They'd so have I'm a
1: huge sorry. cocaine
2: bender and then yeah. they would have an it, album. Right. It also very much depends on the band, depends on the music, depends on how much they have written.
1: I think I'm good. So those bands didn't take like two days to write the album they had written it beforehand for the most sometimes
0: they would write songs as they were working on the album but yeah okay yeah like the Beatles they would sometimes like turn one out overnight or Elton John you know
2: anyhow But six months, (laughs) they were working. And RCA was like, "Uh, uh." What, meanwhile, CCR did, like, what, three albums in a year? Right. Like, what, 69, 68?
0: Even if you think about the Beatles, like, their entire catalog was done in an incredibly short space of time. Hmm. Um, So, uh, Kalkanen's guitar breaks into solos that feel improvised. You can't predict what any song will do next, and every surprise is, in my opinion, more of a revelation, the stranger it is. Baxter's has all the hallmarks of '60s rock, but also does things that haven't been heard in nearly the same way before. Or since they didn't care about the audience as much as their own creative process,
2: that's what the six months was about.
1: That's why you have. That's what makes good art.
2: Right. Yeah. You just you fuck around and you find out. Yep. <laughs> <Like that's... laughs> yeah. They wanted to do
0: something cool and interesting. They didn't really want to create an earworm with a hook, and that's why Baxter's also wasn't great as far as radio play is concerned four of the eight albums to hold a number one spot in 1967 by the way were the monkeys a band created for television best known for being daydream believers who were not your stepping stone on this pleasant valley sunday uh 1968 saw the beatles and simon and garfunkel creating top records but also big brother and the holding company and jimmy hendrix so you can see the change from 67 to 68. Within a year, counterculture music was finding its way into the mass market, but the airplane remained always on the edge of that market. Surrealistic Pillow made it to number three on the album charts, number 17 crown of creation their fourth album was number six critically acclaimed commercially viable but never chart toppers the airplane mm-hmm. they weren't as artistically challenging as fellow californian uh frank zappa or the mother uh, and his mothers of inventions or for that matter captain b and his magic band you know these guys Mims? No.
2: Uh, i know frank zappa who the oh, fuck you, was you gotta that listen the one? to
0: captain b if you like zappa captain b and his magic band yeah you're going to like them. I'm going to write that down Yeah, Captain quick. Beefheart. Um, so these guys were, like, on that bleeding edge, right? Zappa is known for, like, his guitar solos that you know, he doesn't know where they're going in the middle of them. Um, and their lyrics were extremely, you know, politically savvy and on edge and sometimes incomprehensible, so airplane aren't them they're not all the way out there and zappa was incredibly non-commercial you almost you won't hear zappa on the radio Mm. on dad dad rock radio like you won't hear him anywhere nobody plays zappa we do right
2: (laughs) people who like zappa play zappa Yeah, it's it's one of those things it's just like you get into it because you're you're on like a I'm gonna to listen to this. I'm gonna to listen to this, and I'm gonna go further down this rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same way with with heavier, or for me anyway, with heavier music. Like, mm-hmm. I would be all right. I'm gonna to listen to Metallica. All right, I'm gonna to listen to Children of Bodom. All right, I'm gonna to listen to Cannibal Corpse. Like, it's and it just, keeps getting yeah. further from the mainstream. Yeah. yeah.
0: So Airplane, I would say, was like midway between. They were pushing the scene forward in ways that expanded to their audience's tastes, even though they weren't on the very edge, the most psychedelic. And expand their taste they did, because the airplane, unlike the monkeys or Zappa, were front and center for some of the most iconic live performances of the era. They performed at the Monterey International Pop Festival along with The Who, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, the Mamas and the Papas, bridging old and new 60s rock with Mamas and the Papas being the old school and Joplin and The Who and Hendrix being the new psychedelic. More psychedelic sound. And then there was the Woodstock Music and Art Fair in 1969. They flew in by helicopter because the roads were impassable and went on nine hours late. Can Whoa, you imagine? Shit. Yeah. Uh, I'm Slick like called it morning maniac music when they finally started playing on Sunday at 6
2: a.m. Oh,
1: my God. Oh,
2: shit. Yeah. This is...
1: Uh... Woodstock sounds like the worst thing that's ever happened. It
2: it sounds like a combination of the worst and the best.
1: Yeah, like I... Like would you, you wouldn't
2: have wanted to be there because no. you would have been very uncomfortable. I would have been
1: like, this is the worst day of my life. Where is the we'll... bathroom? <laughs> Why is everything muddy? I can't drive anywhere. It's the worst
2: multiple days of your yeah. life.
1: Yeah. I it's... know I'm trapped here. There's no water. You can't get out. <laughs> it's yeah. something yeah. that
2: could only happen in the 60s because when they tried it in the 90s, it sucked. Yeah, that couldn't be replicated. Uh. If you look into like Woodstock 99, it's fucking awful. Oh, I bet like not just because Limp Biscuit was there but <laughs> Limp Biscuit was there and it that kind of made it work.
4: so much of Woodstock's appeal was the chance to simply come together and touch what we knew had already taken birth the audience was completely appreciative no demanding attitudes with the applause total acceptance when a, one group stopped and another began there was no competition the musical execution of most of the bands was far from perfect but the spirit was so powerful it overrode all technical considerations. I mean that sounds cool. Yeah.
1: It does sound like a moving experience, but all the other shit, no, no way. It's it's a little bit weird
0: that people listen to Woodstock. Like there are recordings of it that I think you can listen yeah, to on like, Spotify or anything. But yeah oh. I think
2: I think Hendrix is like like really well known for like the the performance at Woodstock, the if Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, never mind. This is uh, probably something I should research one day. I'll do a strange ride on Woodstock. Oh. I was about to say, who set this whole thing up? Like, why is it a thing? Honestly,
2: but, that would be a damn good uh, strange ride. Up it's so. an
0: interesting story. Uh, I mean, it was it was created by a music promoter who intended to sell tickets, but the festival was so popular that they just opened it up as a free festival because oh. so many people converged on it oh. at this farm yeah
1: interesting okay
0: it was very intentionally set like it's outside New York City it's not in a bad spot no. like you're close to a major metropolitan area but far enough away that you can get 100,000 people into one place but then it just got so big that they, they couldn't keep track anymore and they turned it into a free festival in the middle of the festival so some people at Woodstock paid <gasps> some people just got in whoa yeah Savannah would have been really annoyed I, was, I would
1: have been pissed <laughs> I, I don't like going the normal Music festival. You would so. not have
0: made a very good hippie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want my money back. <laughs> you're oh, looking for the ticket on. office. You're trying to turn Where's me into some office? kind of like Karen or yeah, something. You're, you're the Karen at Woodstock. I
1: just understand my limits, and I'd rather be home playing Baldur's Gate than being muddy and around a bunch of drunken, drugged out people.
2: Let me tell you well, another to be fair, story. They didn't have Baldur's Gate. Uh, yeah, no, they but didn't. Didn't you know, either.
1: I'll bring it with me when I time travel back exactly. to Woodstock.
0: They flew out the the airplane right after their performance to appear on Dick Cavett's interview show. This is a fascinating video that I've watched more than once because I still struggle to wrap my head around what I'm seeing. Dick Cavett was a late-night host who interviewed, like, all the major celebrities, but also, like, intellectual figures of the time period. We almost don't have a correlation anymore because Jimmy Fallon can't hold an intellectual conversation with anybody (laughs) under any circumstances. Speaking of puppets. You're right, yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Mims. That that really warms my cold and heart. Um, But it used to be the case that late-night TV where these, you know, heavy-hitting, like, Norman Mailer and stuff would come on and talk about... journalism and life and politics. So anyway, Dick Cavett does this episode where he brings the Woodstock generation. They're not called the Woodstock generation, but you know, the hippie scene onto his show. And you can still watch this on YouTube. I highly recommend that you just... Give it, a, give it 10 minutes of your life that it's fascinating. Cavett, who usually sat with his guests in in armchairs facing each other, you know, like a serious conversation, sat with the Woodstock generation in a circle on the floor. <laughs> Teenagers and 20-somethings surrounded Cavett and the musicians on all sides, and the floor was painted in psychedelic swirls to oh, suggest that's those.
2: That's re- like not talking down, like meeting at their own level. In
0: if- theory. I have some... So it feels that way. So Joni Mitchell... Hadn't appeared at Woodstock, although Joni Mitchell is famous for having written the song Woodstock, which you probably are more familiar with the CSNY version of. But anyway, she wasn't actually at Woodstock, even though she wrote Woodstock. She was like me. The she reason,
1: was like, fuck that shit. <laughs>
0: no, the reason she didn't go is because she had been scheduled to appear on the Cavett show, and she was afraid <gasps> she would miss it.
1: Oh. She
0: wanted to make sure she got on, on the TV show, because it was a huge part of American culture, and she was Canadian. Um, so... Uh, she was there, as were Stephen Stills and David Crosby, who had been at Woodstock, performing with Graham Nash. Jimi Hendrix didn't make it because the festival had run so late that his performance had only just finished. He also may have been sleeping off some of what he'd taken at the festival. <sighs> what makes the interview so strange is that Cavett talks to these musicians like he's trying to be hip with what the kids are into. Oh, no! Like, no. uh, here's to say, kids. Yeah. But here's the other weird thing. Cavett is only three years older than Grace Slick. Okay. Even though she's one of the kids and he's one of the adults. Uh-huh. He is the adult. Yeah. Um, and he's only five years older than Cantner and David Crosby. So they almost could have gone to high school together. He de- could have gone to high school with Grace Lick, almost could have gone to high school with Cantner and Crosby. Uh, Cavett is fairly square interviewing these hippie musicians. He distances himself from the anti-war politics of the counterculture mm. by making references to his time serving in Guadalcanal. Uh, and when he asks them about their politics, they tell him they have little or no faith in politicians. So you have to remember, Cavett's audience is middle-brow Americans, mm-hmm. like a regular-ass nineteen. 1950- 50s mom and dad and he's sitting around with these kids who threaten them so he is definitely making moves to show that audience that he's not with them even though he's also making moves as Mims is saying to show that he is with them
2: so he's trying to Ride the middle of two extremes, he, yes. which is always a shit situation.
0: It's a fascinating thing to behold, and it's a little cringy sometimes. Um, Cavett seems to know his role to introduce middle America to the freaks and weirdos who had somehow grabbed the culture by the crotch. He spends the interview cracking corny jokes. He asks if the musicians genuinely believe in astrology and what their parents think of what they're doing. Naturedly, needles slick about having gone to Finch, and asks what her parents do for a living. He's basically trying to like show that she's
1: oh she was upper class yeah. and that she's not
0: really a hippie. For her part, she spends the interview calling Dick Cavett Jim. <laughs> <laughs> what? I love this woman. Yeah, and Dick Cavett at one point tries to give it back to her, and he says, "Oh, all right, Janice," because. Oh. <laughs> She's not Janis Joplin. Anyway. The
4: airplane
0: also performed at the low point of the late 60s. Do you know what the low point was, Mims? The Altamont Uh, Speedway. Yeah, it's the Altamont Speedway. Uh, It's the anti-Woodstock, known as the Altamont Free Concert. This was a Rolling Stones invention. Mick Jagger uh, was sad that he wasn't at Woodstock. (laughs) So he wanted to make up his own version of Woodstock. It's San Francisco's Golden Gate Park with the airplane and the dead. But the city wouldn't give them a permit. Uh, And so they had to resort to using the Altamont Speedway, which was 40 miles outside of San Francisco. You know this story? The Hell's Angels provided security. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Which they had done at other events. But this time, as many participants say about this event, the vibes were all wrong. Well, <laughs> enjoy that for a moment, because oh. it's going to go real bad. Yeah. Oh, the
1: vibes are, like, the right vibes, Yes, <laughs> in, the,
0: in the 60s, if the vibes are wrong, you better, Annie, get your gun. Um, so, the angels who had been paid in beer were running out of beer, and they were more than a little drunk or high or whatever the angels generally were. During the airplane set, one of the angels started Someone up in the middle of the crowd. Whoa. In an act of remarkable bravery, Marty Balin leapt off the stage and told the biker to get off the spectator. When the biker wouldn't comply, Balin said, Fuck you, and the biker knocked him to the ground. The biker later apologized. The situation was so bad that the dead showed up but turned around and left before
2: <laughs> playing a single note citing the violent atmosphere the vibes are bad yeah i i think vibes like vibes are off is a bit of an understatement yeah
0: so the dead like walk in and then they
2: walk backwards back out of it
1: jerry
0: garcia's like no thank you
1: yeah
0: uh later that night during the stone set a young black man named meredith hunter was stabbed by the angels and rushed to the hospital where he died oh
1: my god it was a
0: dark dark night for rock and roll
1: holy shit
0: altamont showed the limits of the idealism underneath the hippie movement and by extension the airplane's music an important component of the countercultural music of the 60s was the belief that these musicians could cool the aggressions of western life which had resulted in the vietnam war art could fix our violent tendencies and that they could create a new paradigm for a more peaceful and interconnected way of living but at the Altamont Speedway, the music had been the cause for the gathering, but had done nothing to quell the underlying hostilities within yeah. the crowd, or more specifically, the bikers serving as the event's well, security. And that's what
1: I was just thinking, is like, I, I agree with that sentiment to a point, but the thing is, is that the people who need to see that art the most are not going to pay attention to it. Yeah. yeah. So, why did... This whole thing went crazy because of the bikers
0: probably that was the mistake although they had done security
2: at other events so the problem is when you're paying people in beer you need to pay the right people in beer.
1: <laughs> yeah well also that too that's another mistake
2: it's a very 60s thing to do it, uh, i've it, gotten like as a musician i've gotten paid in beer oh yeah that's true yeah, yeah. And, uh,
1: <laughs> but not your security no
0: no like.
1: like you know what i mean like security <laughs> should be the sober people there yeah
0: exactly it's got that like burning man aesthetic right the burning man has always been the closest i think our culture has come to trying to replicate this the mm-hmm. idea that it's all about barter and that we don't need the system we don't need police you know we can do it all ourselves but the hells angels and the hippies while they had a lot in common being outsiders and countercultural they they also had a lot of differences yeah. and the rolling stones I, I mean there was there was just different images maybe the rolling stones were supposed to be you know harder bad boy kind of thing but the grateful dead and the airplane really weren't that they were the counterculture they were the rebels you know but not that kind of rebel
2: it's it's hmm. different just because it there's an umbrella doesn't mean that you're getting rained on the same
0: way yeah yeah oh. So in my opinion, Altamount was by no means the end of the dream, but it did put a significant damper on the enthusiasm wrought at Woodstock. Uh, And and there is where I'm going to leave it for the first half of our conversation about how we built this city. I know we are far from the (laughs) 80s. We have only just barely peaked into 1970. Um, But that was the heyday of the Jefferson airplane. And we can't, we really can't understand this song unless we have a full grasp of who the airplane were. You guys feel like you got the airplane now? I think so. Yeah. So when we come back, uh, we will talk about how the airplane broke up, which of course they inevitably will do, uh, and how they reformed as Jefferson Starship, and then how the Starship, Jefferson Starship became the Starship, and then how the Starship recorded their number one song
1: and the worst song ever written
0: and the worst song ever written (laughs) yeah
1: interesting okay
0: here on strange ride
1: thank you for riding along with us please watch your step as you exit and take and remember to take all personal belongings with you